Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Ryan Bourne. He occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute, and he is the author of the new book, Economics in One Virus, An Introduction to Economic Reasoning Through COVID-19. Welcome back to the show, Ryan. Great to be with you. I got to ask, isn't it maybe a little ghoulish to use the pandemic to talk about economics or advance an economic agenda? Well, I think economics, as we kind of broadly defined it, uh, define it, is is basically just about the study, uh, the social science study of um, human beings making choices under constraints. And when um, a major event like a pandemic hits, uh, with the per- kind of pervasive disruption that that causes, we have to make a range of um, consequential decisions, an individual basis and at a public policy basis, which require um, thinking about trade-offs, thinking about the unintended consequences of of those decisions, and so making economic judgments. So while I agree with you that on the one hand, you know, this is clearly first and foremost a, a public health problem, and uh, there are value uh, sets beyond economics that we'd want to consider in confronting a problem like this. I think economics as the kind of study of those choices is kind of inescapable in making sure that we make good decisions when an emergency like this hits. What is the, uh, you're doing a reference, I think, for anyone who's not aware of the title. Uh, What is the title referring to? Economics in One Virus is a play on a famous book by Henry Hazlitt, um, which is Economics in One Lesson. Um, Economics in One Lesson um, tried to portray that, in Henry's view, the the most important uh, kind of lesson in economics is that when considering a decision or an action, we have to think about not just the seen or observed consequences, but the unseen and unobserved consequences. And um, he explained that lesson through a range of different uh, case studies in in what truly is a kind of classic economic text. My book is attempting to do something different. It's trying to provide readers with a kind of whistle-stop tour of a whole range of different um, economic principles and ideas, but through the one case study, the broad case study of the pandemic. So that's why it's kind of a play on that title. We've talked a lot about the effects of the pandemic on the economy broadly, but it's been a little bit odd and complicated because on the one hand, a lot of people lost their jobs or had their income reduced. But on the other hand, the, the stock market, I mean, it went, it went down initially, but it has been on, you know, a record setting upwards tear ever since. And many of us who didn't lose our jobs are feeling financially pretty okay because if nothing else, our expenses may have gone down while our incomes remained the same. And so if we're talking about the impact on economic welfare of the last year of the virus, how do we go about measuring that given this kind of complexity of experience? Well, it's incredibly difficult to measure. And that's uh, one reason why ordinarily uh, particularly libertarian economists wouldn't um, attempt to kind of tot up social welfare as a as a function because clearly people's um, the way that people value different different things the consumption of different goods and services uh, their liberties is incredibly subjective so it's incredibly difficult to sum that up across um, a population but what a lot of people do when they talk about economics is um, they describe it as if 
economics is essentially just the same as people's financial situations. And clearly, our financial situations as individuals in households or um, as a country overall is an important component of our well-being. Uh, but our well-being is enhanced by a whole range of things that um, don't crop up in uh, our, our personal finances or, or GDP. So in thinking about this as a kind of economic shock, yes, we have to consider what has happened to GDP and people's personal finances, but we also have to try to account for um, the value of the lost liberties um, as a result of, of this pandemic and also the economic welfare costs of the health aspects of the pandemic, because we know from um, uh, from behaviour in markets that people highly value their health and they highly value their lives, um, because um, when they're willing to trade off um, aspects of their health or, or risks of, of death in work, they require quite high um, degrees of compensation um, to account for those extra risks that they're bearing. So in thinking about, you know, the overall economic welfare consequences of this pandemic, we have to think about not just the the, the kind of lost output, uh, but the lost value of the liberties and the economic welfare costs more broadly defined of the health consequences of the pandemic. So at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, a, a little bit more than a year ago right now, it was a very uncertain time. And you weren't sure what people, whether you were dangerous or what people in your life could be dangerous or who you could be endangering, which seems like by itself just a really good reason to just kind of isolate. Um, and you talk about that in terms of an externality, which we usually think about as like, if you use the word factories polluting and things like this. Um, so you, you could become an externality. But the thing I thought was interesting is like, isn't that always true with disease? Uh, there nothing was really that different about. COVID-19 in that way? To a certain extent, as a society, we've accepted that, you know, the risks of, of cold and, and flu and other viruses like that, um, that there's kind of an inherent understanding that we have the right to go about our lives and that if we do contract them, that's the kind of risks that we take. Um, I think where COVID is concerned, the, the health consequences um, and the broader effects on, on those who catch the disease are on average, a lot more severe than flu. Um, you know, there's a debate around the exact number, but when you try and compare like with like on the kind of infection fatality rate, most of the data that I've seen suggests that it's 10 to 20 times uh, more deadly than, than an ordinary flu across the, the population as a whole. Um, so I think this is a bigger problem. But as you say, there's a, there's a kind of fundamental framework through which we can look at this from that kind of externality perspective. And the thorny issue that we're talking about here is that a range of us engage in kind of social activities um, and me and you might decide to meet for a pint or something, Trevor, and we acknowledge the risks that we're facing. Uh, but as a result of that meeting, we could then risk um, passing on the virus, infecting others who were not party to that initial um, meeting. So we impose risk on, on third parties. And this is more difficult than... Um, many other externality problems because um, we actually can spread the virus when we're asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So we don't really, unless we have widespread testing of everybody every day, we don't really know who is infected. And so trying to come to some sort of agreement whereby we can compensate those that we're putting at risk is really impossible. Um, human networks are incredibly dense and, and overlapping. And so we have this big kind of general 
externality problem of this disease at a societal level. And, you know, sometimes, um, quite often, markets can find innovative ways of dealing with externality problems. Um, if we, in lots of cases, if we, if property rights are kind of assigned, we can come to some sort of compensation and, and, and judgments within markets. Um, but this is a lot more difficult because, as I say, quite often we don't know who actually has the disease uh, in the first place. And even when you do catch the disease, you don't know who you've caught it from. So it, it's quite difficult to assign the rights. And there's a, there's a broader kind of collective action problem, if you were, um, in the sense that um, society on the whole would probably be better if everybody stuck to some basic rules, um, which would enable us um, both to continue living our lives normally, but following these basic rules um, and, 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 you know, avoid catching the disease. Um, the issue with that, though, is that it's incredibly difficult to make sure that everybody sticks to those rules. Um, and when the prevalence of the disease is low, um, we each have an individual incentive to kind of um, to be a bit more daring in our behavior. Uh, but because this thing can spread um, at an exponential rate, if we act relatively normally, things can go rapidly downhill if we don't all stick to those rules. So I'm not pretending there's any easy answers here, but the case for some degree of coercion in uh, trying to make sure that um, we all collectively stick to rules is a lot stronger than perhaps for many other externality problems that that policymakers um, uh, use to, to kind of justify government action. Of course, the extent to that coercive behaviour and the forms in which it should take are a lot more debatable and there's really mixed evidence on the on the different measures that have been used by governments around the world to try to deal with this problem. The other aspect of externalities, which you mentioned, and is a maybe ironic or paradoxical when it comes to COVID-19, but people talk about negative externalities, like I discussed pollution from a factory, but there are positive externalities. I remember one of my professors always said, being beautiful is a positive externality. And maybe people should walk up and pay you because you exude beauty or smelling nice. Uh, but there's another one that comes with the, with COVID-19, which is actually contributing to herd immunity. So how do you kind of weigh those two sides of being dangerous, but if you get the disease and recover, you're now a benefit to society? Well, clearly, um, having immunity to the disease is a it does exhibit positive externalities, and that's the whole reason why um, governments go about subsidising or encouraging vaccinations. It's exactly the same logic, and it's why one of the potential endpoints for this crisis, well, the only endpoint, I guess, eventually is is a degree of, of, of herd immunity when we get to um, such a level of immunity that um, transmission kind of stays relatively uh, constant. We get the occasional outbreak, but at a societal level, we don't have these these massive outbreaks that we've been seeing over the past um, year or so, and it's incredibly difficult. You know, clearly, um, uh, clearly, once people have recovered from the disease, that that is a positive for society in the sense that they're able to engage in more activities uh, safely. In theory, they can serve others' needs, and um, it's one less uh, vector for kind of spreading the disease from there in terms of um, of that individual. Um, now. Is there a way that we could kind of harness that power and think is, you know, we'll try and um, expand the, the positive externalities and, and minimize the negative externalities? Well, some economists quite early on talked about this in a similar way to the Great Barrington Declaration. You had um, uh, MIT's Darren Asamoglu, 
published a paper where he said in an ideal world, we'd have um, much stronger constrictions on those who were highly at risk from the disease. And uh, we'd allow more ordinary behavior um, among those at, at lower personal risk who, who perhaps um, be more likely in net terms to, to exhibit positive externalities through the pandemic. The problem is, as I kind of alluded to earlier, society is this dense um, uh, uh, combination of interlocking networks and dividing people up between those most likely to provide net positive externalities and net negative externalities uh, is incredibly difficult in reality. People live in multi-generational households. Uh, a lot of people do jobs where they they serve people in, in other risk groups. Um, and it's proven, even in countries that have gone down the route of, of trying to a certain extent to deliver focus protection for those most highly at risk, it proves incredibly difficult um, to protect those individuals in a situation where uh, prevalence of the disease is high in the broader community. So even why I think that's a kind of theoretically interesting argument, um, I don't think that thinking of this as that type of optimization problem, which economists are sometimes prone to do, kind of gets us very far in thinking about good policy in this pandemic. As we talk about vaccines and approaching herd immunity, right now in, in the United States, there are some worrying signs, but overall, things feel f you know far more hopeful than they have at probably any time in the last year. You know, all of us know lots of people who are getting vaccinated if we're not vaccinated ourselves. And we're, you know, the total number of people immune to this disease is going up at, you know, millions per day. At the same time, we see these outbreaks. Michigan, as we're recording this, is is skyrocketing. And so there are lots of calls to, in various places, return to strictly enforced measures of social distancing, masking, closing restaurants, you know, potentially lockdowns, and so on. And and that was a running theme throughout the last year but what's the what's the relationship between how we behave and these government policies like does do lockdowns actually do anything as far as changing our behavior or do they tend to follow along on the behavior people are already engaging in well, I think the net effect of lockdowns is um, context and time specific um, if you look across the world as a whole, um, there doesn't seem to be anywhere, even in countries that didn't lock down, where you get a, a kind of escalating outbreak right the way through to a point where the country gets herd immunity and then the disease fizzles out. Now, that appears to suggest that once the prevalence of the disease gets high enough in the community, people change their behavior drastically. Um, and as a result of that, the transmission rate of the virus falls. Um, we get those kind of waves that we've seen in infection rates and deaths. So, you know, somebody who was opposed to lockdowns would look at that and say, see, behavior changes on its own. The issue is that at the stage at which um, the prevalence threshold of the disease at which behavior changes dramatically um, appears to be quite a movable feast. It appears different um, within states and countries um, and across um, uh, different countries over time, depending on the context. Um, my instincts is, you know, you've mentioned the, the relationship between lockdowns and voluntary action. My instinct actually is that last spring when this virus first hit, um, 
commentators who are both kind of opposed to lockdowns vociferously and, and those that um, strongly supported them overrated lockdowns in terms of their their impacts. I think there was huge um, voluntary changes to behavior, people spending much more time at home, um, not visiting certain outlets in those early days, and that actually the, the private voluntary behavioral response led the public um, in, in many respects. There's been some good work by economist Austin Goolsby on this at the University of Chicago. He reckons that there was a downturn in, in kind of um, to the to the extent of 60 percentage points in uh, consumer traffic fall across businesses as a, as a whole and that legal restrictions, if you compare kind of uh, commuting zones with um, state and county boundaries with different policy regimes, you can kind of get some variation. Legal restrictions explain only about seven percentage points of those 60 uh, percentage points. So quite a small component. Um, my instincts, therefore, are that lockdowns on the margin um, do have an impact in terms of further constraining our behavior. I mean, how could they not in many respects? There's bound to be uh, some people who'd be willing to continue to engage in activities absent lockdowns. Uh, but certainly in those early days, um, they were a small component of the overall behavioral response that we saw as a result of the virus. Now, that doesn't mean they're not important. It could be that um, that was the kind of straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of reducing the transmission rate of the the, the virus um, below one, and so leading to a downturn in infections and deaths. Um, since then, I think that the evidence is much more messy. If you look at um, if you look at individual states, the relationship between uh, states that have used lockdown measures in the period, say from from May last year through to today, and their performance in terms of infections and deaths, there isn't really any clear evidence that we can take away from that. Um, but, you know, I, I think on the margins, I think lockdowns do have an impact um, in terms of the public health effects. Um, but of course, we have to balance that with the fact that they're incredibly crude impositions. And for the same reasons they have an impact on the, the public health side, they also come with very, very large economic costs too. And so uh, it just, just, just to kind of take this back a step, I don't think anyone in this debate would look across countries over the past year and say, if we could go back and start this again, the optimal response uh, would have been use of on-off use of lockdowns through the last year. I think clearly when you look at what other countries, particularly countries like Korea, Taiwan, uh, some other East Asian countries have done, uh, that has clearly been preferable both in terms of performance on public health and performance um, on economic activity and, and liberties too. Um, but we have to judge individual lockdowns in the, the context and time at which they occur. You made the, uh, used the word a couple times, uh, margins, which some of our listeners may not be familiar with, but in this context, it's a good kind of teaching lesson, uh, as the whole book is about. What is marginal thinking in the economic sense, thinking on the margins, um, and why does that matter? I mean, it's interesting when you talk about how much did the law, the lockdown laws affect people's behavior. Um, but I, I was thinking, well, the same question could be asked about murder laws. Like, are, are murder laws the primary reason people don't commit murder or the punishment for murder? Um, it's the same basic idea, correct? Yeah. So when we're talking about thinking on the margin, we're really, we're really saying um, that you should 
you should judge a kind of imposition or policy in this regard in terms of its impact over and above the kind of counterfactual that we're dealing with. So um, a good way to think about this is, is that I describe in the book actually is road building, right? We can look back at the economic effects of, of roads that have previously been built. And a lot of people, when they're trying to make the case for these big infrastructure projects that the likes of Joe Biden are now pushing, they'll say the building of the interstate highway system massively improved uh, productivity and, and so GDP growth across the US. Okay, fine. We can argue about the the underlying economics of that. But that doesn't really tell us much about uh, what the net economic impact of a new road will be. Uh, that you have one highway system doesn't mean that you need to build another one uh, and or that that second highway system will have the same um, economic impacts as the first. Um, and this is crucial to thinking about lockdowns and thinking about the individual regulations that implicitly make up lockdowns because um, some of them in isolation will clearly have um, net positive marginal impacts and some of them clearly will have net negative marginal impacts. So I don't believe, for example, that one implicit regulation wrapped up in stay-at-home orders is that you shouldn't travel across the state to to go and stay in your second home that might be empty. Now, that clearly has barely any uh, public health benefit but does come um, with a with a cost to the individual in terms of not being able to perhaps move to somewhere where they'd be uh, more comfortable staying for the duration of that lockdown. And when we think about um, lockdowns as those kind of bundles of implicit regulations, there's clearly a lot of things that could have been stripped out of them, which have net negative consequences for society. When we're weighing these these policies and we're looking at the the cost to society of different options for reducing deaths, one of the, to get back to the, the ghoulish question, one of the potentially ghoulish things we have to look at is how do we trade off lives saved against, say, economic costs or liberty costs or other things that we might find valuable? Because we could, I mean, obviously, there are ways that we could have prevented all or most COVID deaths, but they would have been, you know, we could lock everyone in individual rooms for a year. Um, but we're not willing to bear that cost. What does economics tell us about about making that kind of unfortunate calculus? Well, economics in theory is well-placed to make these kind of judgments um, because we use quite often cost-benefit analysis as, as part of our toolkit where we kind try and kind of broadly define um all the economic welfare costs of a particular decision and weigh that against all the economic welfare benefits of a particular decision. Um, and if the, the benefits exceed the costs, then we know that the, the project is kind of sound and worth um, considering. Of course, you have to think carefully that a, that a um, benefit cost ratio is above one. And so, you know, the project is, is sound on benefit cost grounds doesn't mean that it would be the, the optimal uh, policy. It might be that there's a completely different um, set of proposals that could achieve um, a higher benefit to cost ratio. Um, but when thinking about this kind of COVID crisis, um, although that framework, you know, is a useful kind of starting point, there are a range of quite big difficulties in working out the cost and benefits 
in reality. So, you know, working out the benefits of, say, a, a social distancing restriction mandated by the government, um, one would have to try and consider, first of all, how many lives or what health impact uh, that regulation would have on the margin. Um, and, and to do that well, you have to define the counterfactual of what would happen um, absent that measure. Um, you also then have to apply evaluation um, of of the kind of value of the number of statistical lives in 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 that um, uh, framework that you'd be saving, which is itself um, quite a controversial um, area of economics. Um, economists tend to think that the value of statistical life, so that is the value of um, mitigating uh, a death risk through a regulation. Say they tend to value each individual life in that regard quite highly, but there's a wide range of, um, of values that economists would calculate depending on how you go about doing it. And then on the cost side, of course, you have the same issues in many ways. You have to try and ascertain um, what the baseline downturn, say, in, in GDP would be um, as a result of um, people voluntarily um, adjusting to this virus and, and try and work out what the marginal impact of any new restriction on, on top of that voluntary behavioral change would be. And of course, you have to try and account for the losses of liberties, which have very subjective values. If I was to miss the funeral of an important family member as a, a result of a, a lockdown regulation, that clearly would have a high, very high personal cost to me. Um, looking at GDP or something like that alone uh, wouldn't account for this cost. Um, now, those are incredibly subjective. Um, policymakers are particularly well-placed in terms of calculating them. Um, but if they're going to decide on these major consequential decisions that have massive costs and massive benefits, um, they should at least try to consider um, some sort of valuation of those lost liberties as well. So I guess to answer your question, Aaron, we do have frameworks as economists for trying to think about these things, and they usually apply to much smaller projects such as, you know, building a new, the economic case for building a new bridge, um, a lot of these issues become much more difficult to calculate in reality when you're talking about society-wide restrictions um, during an emergency pandemic scenario. Back to the, the ghoulishness issue, it seems that valuing a statistical life is a little ghoulish. And maybe this is why economists don't make many friends at parties or something because they kind of break everything down in that way. But you mentioned that the value of going to a loved one's funeral is subjective and it could be very high, but, but isn't the value of a family member to someone just, you know, something you can't really put a price tag on? Why, why would we even try to do that? Well, um, inevitably we have to try to do it when we're thinking about public policy decisions, because um, we're not talking about individual valuations. We're talking about how much costs should other people in society outside of your family bear um, for the imposition of some sort of regulation on their lives. Um, now, the way that economists tend to do this is to look at people's willingness to pay in labour markets. So um, in a lot of jobs, for example, where there's an elevated mortality risk, perhaps you know, you're know you doing a, a job where you're having to climb um, skyscrapers or you're working in a dangerous mine or whatever, um, there's quite often what economists would describe as a compensating differential. So um, relative to other jobs that are in similar fields uh, but aren't quite as dangerous, 
um, an individual would tend to be paid a premium to work in a more dangerous job. And this variation between uh, the elevated risk of, of death in the job and the, uh, the the extra amount that somebody has to be paid to compensate uh, them for, for taking that job can be used to calculate across all workers in that um, in, in that industry um, the amount that they collectively would have to be paid in order to compensate them for the statistical risk of one person dying. So I know that sounds like a mouthful, but what we're talking about when we talk about a value value of a statistical life is um, the amount that a group in society would have to be paid uh, collectively. Uh, to bear the cost of um, a risk which would likely lead to uh, any given member of that group dying. Uh, now, that's not the same as a valuation of a human life. That, say, we have, um, that, say, we collectively need to be paid 10 million to risk somebody in society potentially dying because of an elevated mortality risk doesn't mean that any given person would accept um, 10 million dollars in return for certain death. Um, but uh, when we're thinking about public policy decisions, we have to try and account for the value of mitigating death risks. And, and that's the way that economists try to calculate them. Now, are those appropriate when are those um, kind of labor market study values appropriate when thinking through um, an issue like COVID-19? There might be reasons to think that actually those valuations that we take from labor market studies are too high. Um, a lot of those valuations come from um, trade-offs um, for working age people. Um, uh, older people tend to have um, much more varied willingness uh, to pay valuations um, than working age people that are often quite in quite similar cohorts within a within a particular industry. Um, and we know that the the kind of death risks associated with COVID nineteen. Um, are massively higher for the elderly than the young. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, we have to, when we're making public policy decisions, we can't act as if every individual life is of infinite value. Um, otherwise, we would all be at home stuck in those bubbles that Aaron talked about. So we have to find some way of, of trading things off. Um, the value of a statistical life provides a framework for thinking through the valuations associated with reducing death risks. Whether the exact figure um, that we that we kind of commonly hear is right, given the populations affected, I'm less certain about. One of the really striking things this last year, watching the pandemic unfold and our response to it, adapt to that, is not just how little we know and how much we continue to not know about the the specific nature of the virus and its spread but also the the economic consequences the social consequences but two how much what we thought we know knew at any given time turned out to be wrong turned out to change and this would seem to cause a a tremendous problem for any sort of centralized response to this. If you're the government and you have to figure out what policies to adopt, you have to operate on the knowledge you have, and that knowledge might be wrong or it might change tomorrow. And this is a country of you know, hundreds of millions of people in lots of different circumstances, as we talked about. Um, 
this sounds a lot like the knowledge problem in in economics that we libertarians love to talk about. So what what is that and how does that apply to the COVID situation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one could always imagine in a kind of static world in theory, if somebody was able to collect all the information about the way that we live our lives and our preferences um, and our abilities to produce and our productivity and everything else, you could insert all of those values into a computer computer and, and come up with the best way of, of perhaps, um, in this case, minimizing deaths or in other cases, uh, generating the most economic output. Um, in reality, of course, a lot of our, a lot of the things that are inherent in why we're productive uh, as individuals uh, entail incredibly local knowledge. The best way to manage us as individuals, um, uh, our experience in, in dealing with particular situations that might only arise um on occasions, but but perhaps most importantly, the fact that society in reality is is dynamic. Um, we're not just kind of um, uh, static um, atoms affected by outside forces. Um, in reality, we're we're continually adapting to the um, circumstances around us, and uh, we're we're pretty entrepreneurial um, in the broadest sense of the term. We're testing out new things constantly, and realizing that we have preferences uh, when new goods become available that we didn't even know existed before. So you're right, Aaron, this is an incredibly, this makes a, a challenge like COVID-19 incredibly difficult for policymakers to deal with. Initially, they were dealing with the fact that there was huge uncertainty about the virus itself, um, how this thing was transmitted. You know, we sometimes forget um, that in those early days, uh, there was much less discussion of this being an airborne virus and a much more discussion of hand washing as a key way of, of preventing this from spreading. We didn't really know. Um, the days when I was wiping down my groceries. I mean, those days. Exactly, yeah. When we were wiping down our deliveries and all that and stuff. And when yeah. we were all going to um, the stores looking for hand sanitizer. Um, you know, there was, mu there was much less... Um, obvious knowledge about whether in the future a vaccine or, or uh, therapeutics um, were going to be, a, decent therapeutics were going to be available. Uh, we didn't know how um, individuals or we collectively would actually react when, when having a lot of these um, social distancing regulations imposed um, upon us. Um, and as a result of that, this, this produces a big uh, problem. Um, one, one issue with this is that um, – Unlike kind of within market activity, um, government activity doesn't tend to have those mechanisms inherent within it for rapid error correction when things are clearly wrong for adjusting um, quickly because um, we don't have those responses through um, change consumer behavior and, and prices that we see in, in ordinary markets. Um, and I think this is... Um, kind of evident in some of the mistakes that have been made um, through this pandemic, which I'm sure we will talk about in more detail. But I think the, the main lesson from all of this is that um, there are probably areas where um, public officials can um, try to propagate the, the information um, to the best of their abilities at given times, and um, they should be honest and outline where there's uncertainty. But I think at a localized level, they should, as far as possible, allow um, adaptation um, and uh, and try and remove barriers to us adjusting our lives to try and deal with a new situation. So they've done that to a certain extent. We've had to 
remove a whole raft of different regulations on on industries to allow um, industries to move into new sectors. You know, distilleries becoming uh, hand sanitizer manufacturers. We've had to allow, um, uh, which positive in the longer term too, but there's been a, much more in the way of, of, of telehealth as a result of um, temporary deregulations of the provision of healthcare and a whole range of other things. Um, and I think that is uh, representative of this broader issue that when a crisis like this hits, uh, the most powerful um, tool that we have um, as a society as a whole is our ability to adapt to the new circumstances. And while public policy can play um, can play a role in in shaping that, evidently, um, I think um, it's much better for policymakers to try and set the broad principles or the basic information and then allow individuals um, um, and businesses to try and adjust as best they can, given the local knowledge that they have of their particular situation. As is so often the case when something like something big like this happens, you get competing sides who come in and say, uh, the government uh, is is the one that's going to fix this and did fix it. And then the, maybe the libertarians say, Oh no, the free market is going to be the one that fixed it. And it was the one that ultimately fixed it. Uh, in some regards, we, we talked about some of these regulations. You mentioned a few of them that were harmful uh, to at least adjustment. Uh, but there were some that came out of the FDA in terms of just the way that we were able to achieve testing. And you write about that in the book, um, which they're still seemingly dragging their feet on for home testing. Um, why did that take so long? Well, I, I think, you know, there's inertia in, in any public body. Um, but I think behind those mistakes was just a fundamental error of economic reasoning. Um, and that error essentially was to um, incorrectly define the, the kind of counterfactual as I described earlier. And as a result, to miscalculate the costs and benefits of, of the regulations as they stood. So when the pandemic hit, um, the FDA introduced its emergency use authorization procedure um, for the tests, which actually threw up new hurdles to a lot of labs who would ordinarily be able to undertake PCR tests uh, from doing them. But the reason why they introduced that was because they were worried that if um, those tests were slightly inaccurate, it would give public health officials a false impression of the state of the pandemic. Well, of course, you know, that is something that one should be worried about. We obviously all in an ideal world want more accurate tests. But at the time, the alternative that we faced um, uh, to having slightly inaccurate tests was actually having no tests. Um, and as a result of having no tests or at least very few tests um, available to the population as a whole at that time, tons of people were walking around as false negatives. Um, they had the disease, were infected with it without realizing it. And ultimately, as a result of not being able to isolate more of those individuals early on, we all then had to live our lives as if we were false positives, as if um, everybody that we came across uh, potentially was infected with the disease, even though the vast majority of them weren't. So I think that was a really costly kind of first mistake in the pandemic. Um, some people have described it as a kind of the original sin that made everything else more difficult. I'm not sure that testing ever would have been the silver bullet in the United States, uh, simply because I think the community spread of the disease was probably higher than we'd have expected. Uh, but that initial era took the kind of South Korean option of, uh, of a test and trace approach to this pandemic off the table straight away. And kind of downstream of that introduced a whole range of the problems that we've seen since then. Now, you mentioned, um, Trevor, 
that we didn't kind of learn from that mistake. Um, and up until very, very recently, the FDA was still holding back um, the approval of um, rapid home tests, um, in part because they were judging them as a diagnostic tool for um, a, a diagnostic test for the disease, for a kind of infection, um, as opposed to treating them as a broader public health measure that could help on the margin. Um, if we'd have been able to undertake more of these tests, which everybody knows um, are, are less sensitive than the PCR tests, that means you probably get more false negatives, people who, who are actually infected who um, don't show up on these tests yet. Um, uh, you know, that is a problem with these tests um, relative to PCR tests. But the alternative to most people uh, when they wake up and decide to do a test is not a PCR test being able to be done straight away and being able to isolate soon afterwards. It's seeing how they feel, um, judging whether they've got a temperature and then deciding uh, whether they should go about their their work. So on the margin, I think these rapid at-home tests, as, as we've seen at certain universities and within the the MBA and other organizations with regular testing, I think could have helped isolate more infectious people uh, more quickly than otherwise, and at a community level could have helped reduce transmission of the disease, and as a result led to um, more activities um, uh, being undertaken relatively safely. Uh, but that was taken off the table because these tests were judged in the same way as um, or ordinary diagnostic tools as opposed to them being a kind of community disease management tool. Um, and you see this this mistake, this implicit calculation of the costs and benefits as a result of not defining the counterfactual again and again and again um, through this. You, know, you could talk about the failure to approve the AstraZeneca um, vaccine more recently, for example. There were some problems in some of the early trials of AstraZeneca and the FDA weren't happy with the way that they reported their data. But on the margin, you know, were the benefits of making them undertake a domestic U.S. trial um, really worth the costs of not getting those extra doses in arms and, and getting um, uh, more people in the U.S. Um, a degree of protection from this virus? I don't see how those marginal benefits could could um, even in theory overcome the large marginal costs of the extra infections and deaths that we've seen. So we see this problem being repeated again and again through this pandemic. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting one because the, it was somewhat of a disturbing report, I felt like, shortly after they announced the first vaccine that it came out that the vaccine actually existed in January of 2020. It was, it was invented within days. Um, and that raises this question of, is the FDA, did the FDA really just kind of harm, ultimately have a net negative by delaying this. I mean, can you imagine if we were all getting vaccinated in March, um, a March a year ago? Um, is Does that say bad for what the FDA does in general, that it's like overly risk averse it, it, all the time, but especially in situations like this? We've seen an announcement today that actually, uh, as a consequence of a lot of these changes to regulations and, and the speeding up that we have seen in this past year, it appears that there's been dramatic progress in provisions of a potential vaccine for HIV, uh, which suggests that some of those costs from the precautionary behavior that we've seen um, have had big societal consequences even prior to this pandemic. Um, now, I can understand in part why, um, even though things have been sped up, and I think, you know, on the margin, um, Operation Warp Speed probably probably did help speed things up, and and the FDA evidently have been working with these companies to try and streamline some of the ordinary um, trial procedures. 
Um, you know, I think that um, there are concerns that people would have had if, you know, there'd have been a vaccine um, available within a couple of months. Uh, but there are things that we, we could have done in terms of speeding it up further um, if we rethought our ethical and regulatory frameworks around human challenge trials um, and allowed uh, young and healthy individuals to participate in you know, being paid an amount to bear the risk of being deliberately infected with the virus um, as part of a vaccine trial, we could have potentially brought this forward um, a few extra months and a few extra months um, in terms of the rollout of this vaccine, uh, given the large ongoing um, economic and, and public health costs, uh, could have been pretty dramatic in terms of its its net benefits for society. Um but I just reiterate, I mean, I, I do think that this was more of a thorny issue for, for policymakers in the sense that a vaccine is no good if people are unwilling to take it. And I think if it had been available within a month or two, even though it was produced pretty early and appears to have been uh, safe from pretty early on, um, there may have been a consequence in terms of a much less willingness to take it. Um, so there is a, a degree of a trade-off there. But yes, Trevor, you're right. I think... Um, I think this episode does prove that a lot of the precautionary behavior that we see does have um, much bigger social costs. And I, I would also say um, it highlights a degree of parochialism as well, um, because this trial data was interpreted very differently from many other public health agencies and um, vaccine um, and, and drug regulators around the world. Um, and I don't really understand why there couldn't be uh, more coordination in terms of picking up the phone and, and talking through some of the issues with them, which presumably uh, to an extent was going on, as opposed to making the company rerun in, in AstraZeneca's case, the whole trial in the United States, holding things up for months and months and months. Early on, we saw a lot of shortages, toilet paper, you know, and also hand sanitizer was quite hard to get. Masks were also hard to get. And one of the results of that was that when you could find them, they were hugely expensive. You know, if you went on Amazon, hand sanitizer was at a crazy high cost, toilet paper as well. Third-party sellers popped up to provide it at, you know, what looked like ludicrous prices. And there was a lot of concern about this, this price gouging, that this was people taking advantage of our sudden need for these products. Is that bad? Is it bad when sellers jack up prices like that? Are they kind of screwing all of us? Well, I think it's just reflective of the reality of the situation. Um, now, every market is very, very different. Um, I think in the case of toilet paper that you mentioned, for example, the big issue there is that we were, as a result of spending far less time at work and far more time at home, uh, we were not demanding the commercial grade toilet paper, which is usually lower quality, but we're willing to accept when we go to the bathroom at work and we're substituting our demand for the stuff at home. So there's that big demand shift. And actually, it was quite difficult for uh, producers to reorient production, quite often different producers of the different types of toilet paper. Um, so there were kind of near term shortages whilst um uh, some of the home toilet paper producers kind of had to ramp up their operations, which is why we saw um, short-term shortages on the shelves. Um, prices are governed uh, by supply and demand. Um, uh, you know, 
we talk as if um, companies can charge whatever they like for their for their goods and services. Uh, they can only charge what people are willing to pay. Um, and as a result of this crisis, um, a whole range of products were in much higher demand than they were previously. Now, what would happen ordinarily in that scenario is that a rising price would uh, occur. Um, people would notice, people, producers would notice that rising price. Some of the people who had newly demanded, say, hand sanitizer would think, mm, the price is a bit higher now. I'm not sure that I really need to buy two two whole packets of this stuff. Maybe I'll just stick to one or maybe I'll just stick to a couple uh, for my handbag. So there'd be a, a kind of offsetting reduction in the quantity uh, demanded, which would partially ameliorate that uh, initial increase in demand. And some of the suppliers would think, well, as a result of this um, of this higher price, we're potentially going to make a bigger markup on on each individual order. So actually, it might be worth us um, economically paying our staff overtime, running the machines hotter, perhaps even uh, investing in a couple of um, different machines to meet this new demand. Now, as a society, um, at a societal level, there's going to be near-term shortages. Um, but that price rise over time leads to um, uh, the amelioration of, of the shortages on shelves. Um, there's overall more traded, but at higher prices. Um, and in time, um, one would imagine that companies will um, enter the market and invest in the um, in, in the production such that prices would come back down. Now, what have we seen in this crisis? Well, there's, there's two things really that have resulted in a situation where we had sustained shortages and then very high prices online. Firms for a long time, particularly the big retail outlets and the big pharmacies have been worried about um, the reputational consequences of being seen to hike prices of particular goods in demand in emergencies. Um, we see this always with um, with hurricanes and, and storms everywhere. Um, uh, big companies like Walmart are kind of, uh, they think it's um, it would be a hit to their reputation to raise prices. So they don't tend to raise prices. They tend to then bring supply in from uh, nearby areas to, to uh, try and uh, deal with any near-term shortages that we, we've seen. Um, in this situation, though, the pandemic was affecting the country as a whole. So we can see those kind of offsetting effects from elsewhere. So a combination of um, companies being unwilling to to raise prices through their reputational impact drove a lot of activity to these uh, less liquid markets online. So we saw the higher prices. But then on top of that, of course, we have um, state level anti-price gouging laws, um, which uh, seek to punish uh, companies that that sometimes raise prices above a particular level, sometimes um, uh, they're kind of not clear as to exactly what what a degree of price rises are, are allowed. And as a result of that, um, on the margin, at least fewer companies are willing to um, enter the sector and, and provide the extra supply to meet that demand. So we see sustained shortages. Um, so I, to answer your question kind of more directly, Aaron, I don't have a view of whether I don't have like a, a value judgment view of whether it's it's good or not. I just see the price changes as a reflection of the reality of the situation. Um, and if we want to suppress that price message and pretend that everything is fine and, and everybody will be able to fulfill their um, demands at ordinary prices, then we're going to see sustained shortages. Given all these lessons, one of the things that 
has seemed to come up in this discussion is we made mistakes. We did some things correctly. Sometimes we made the same mistake a bunch of times, um, being overly cautious with the FDA, perhaps um, overly imposing lockdowns, maybe. But so what do we do? What do we learn? Are you optimistic? Are you that we've learned, you know, if, we, if another pandemic hits, I mean, we're not out of this one yet, but, but it seems like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If another pandemic hits in 2030, um, do you think that we'll have better lessons or does there sort of the machinery of government and human behavior kind of run the same playbook over and over again? Well, it depends, I think, on the contours of the pandemic. Um, I think if we were to be hit with a very, very similar virus, then we probably would see a better response next time, um, in part because the political incentives have changed. There'd be big political costs um, to not uh, fighting the last war after this and ensuring that the, the testing um, regulatory framework was better. Uh, there'll probably be a whole bunch of demands after this for governments to invest in excess capacity of the production of face masks and, and ventilators and a whole range of other things that would have been useful um, in hindsight to have um, in this crisis, but which we didn't early on. Um, but of course, if the next pandemic or the next crisis that hits is, is very different in nature, um, I don't see any inherent reason why we would why this experience would make us better prepared for that. Um, there's a big eco economic literature which actually shows that um, the political incentives to prepare for low probability, high risk events is incredibly low. Um, and in part, that's because of elections. Um, if you look, there's been some fun papers that have looked at whether politicians are rewarded for making kind of preparatory investments um, in uh, in things that would help when crises like hurricanes or tornadoes or, or things like that hit. And uh, what that literature tends to find is that um, we as electors don't reward those that um, invest in the preparation, in part because we don't observe it or, um, you know, a crisis doesn't actually occur. Um, or if it does occur, we just presume that things would have been fine anyway. Uh, but we do tend to reward politicians that, when it does hit, provide us with extensive relief and um, uh, and take emergency actions quickly. So I suspect that, you know, thinking through those political incentives, I, I think coming out of this, there'll probably be, you know, lots of different commissions and retrospective analyses that will look at the individual decisions that have been made and, and um, highlight where there have been mistakes. We will then spend vast amounts trying to correct those observable uh, mistakes, but a lot of them have been very uh, regulatory and, and testing issues aside. A lot of them have been very specific to the circumstances of this pandemic. Um, and, and the key lesson that I think should be taken away from this is that um, real resilience comes from our ability to quickly adapt um, to very, very different situations. So if the next pandemic, as I say, is very similar to this, then just like um, some of the East Asian countries have experienced SARS and MERS have seemed to deal better with this crisis, I think we would be better placed in 2030. Um, the problem is crises have a tendency not to uh, replicate the thing that has just happened. Um, and if something very different um, uh, will occur, um, say something that affects the domestic 
um, situation more than the international situation, then it might turn out that investing in a whole bunch of capacity onshore in the United States actually leaves us more vulnerable to the next crisis and not better prepared for it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.